This is Bob Mack, and you're listening to Crash in the Party with Mark and Miriam. Well, if you give a party, don't lock the door. Turn out all the lights, cause if you don't let my voice inside, it's going to be a fight. Well, we started out this morning, we're going to rack some heads. Some names know that to call the heat, and now we're laying dead. Well, if you give a party, don't lock the door. Turn out all the lights, cause if you don't let my voice inside, it's going to be a fight. Greetings and salutations, and welcome to a very special episode of Crashing the Party, the very best in doo-wop and R&B vocal group sounds with your hosts, Mark and Miriam. And now Miriam will tell you why it's such a special show. Tonight, we are going to share with you the story and some incredible records that created the world's biggest explosion of rare rhythm and blues in the 1960s in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the only city in which obscure and unknown R&B records were hotter than the national hits. It is the mecca for record collectors and record lovers everywhere. On the phone with us is the man who built the largest chain of dance clubs in the nation and whose radio show became number one playing mostly unknown R&B records. Mr. Bob Mack, welcome to our show, Crash in the Party. Miriam and Mark, uh, my pleasure to be with you on your show and also say thank you for all you have done to keep our the music we love alive. We do it because we love it. <laughs> We're together with that. <laughs> I have uh, so many things that we could talk about, I suppose, that uh, were unique to this city. But uh, do you want me to dive in with a couple things, or do you have questions? Uh... Well, we have, we have both, Bob. We'd like to know how you were initially introduced to rhythm and blues, and when this all happened. Was it, were you in uh, elementary school, middle school? Junior high, high school, where, what point of life were you at when you really got into all of this rhythm and blues sound? Sure, sure. Well, uh, in the beginning, uh, when I was a kid getting ready for school and the radio was on, we were dealing with music that didn't mean anything to me. A mule train and how much is that doggy in the window? <laughs> uh, we eventually, I did, uh, progressed... Uh, in the mid-50s to uh, at least something that I related to and really uh, was impressed with, and that is the uh, the song, the vocal group harmony of J- even pop artists like uh, uh, Four Lads and uh, 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 the uh, DeCastro Sisters and things like that. But uh, where I really got hooked on... Rhythm and Blues. Uh, I just got my license and was driving with some friends after school one day, and uh, they were scanning our AM radio for some music. And uh, at one point, this was my dad's Buick Roadmaster. They had for its day a pretty, you know, basic and full big speaker uh, sound system. And for its day. And um, 
all of a sudden I heard this this rhythm that was unique and 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 it just blew me away. I said, "Whoa, back up! What was that?" And、uh, turned out that was Bo Diddley by Bo Diddley. And、uh, we so we listened and、uh, turned the volume up and.、Uh, And I, I can't remember the exact tunes, but I'm assuming it was、uh, pretty sure it was things similar to like、uh, Shake Rattle or Joe Turner and、uh, maybe a little richer、uh, Penguin Zuki Uke or uh, uh, something like that. And there was、uh, a couple great、um, records for what always was the killer for me: the great vocal group Harmony. And、uh, records by you know, groups like the Harp Tones, Orioles, Turbans, whatever you know. And I was just blown away. It was I. I didn't know what it was, but I knew my life would never be the same. Uh, uh, I just I, I almost、uh, couldn't sleep at night. But anyway, we、uh, finally. I was so、uh, curious and interested and moved by what I had heard. It was a life changing moment for me. Maybe not others, but. Uh, we actually、uh, that Saturday, following Saturday, found WHOD, a little radio station, two fifty water,、uh, like most of the cities, you know, a small station. They did very little to lose by playing、uh, the first、uh, black music,、uh, with whatever consequences there might be. Anyway, so we 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 find、uh, WHOD. Radio、uh, on、uh, West Eighth Avenue and Homestead,、uh, the Milltown,、uh, behind a, a drugstore. We go in, and、uh, in the lo- lobby, you could hear. I guess there were some speakers there. I don't know, but anyway, the fallen back who was Porky Chedwick,、uh, uh, the first、uh, guy in Pittsburgh. Every city, I think, as you probably know, at that, in that at that era when commercial rhythm and blues started about '55 with Bill Dilley, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, and all that.、Uh, every city had, a, I mean, there were a, a white DJ uh, usually <laughs> playing the first rhythm and blues. Mobo in L.A., Hondog in Buffalo.、Uh, Dewey in Memphis, Alan Freed in, in Pittsburgh. It was quirky. So、um, we walk in, and he seemed like very friendly. He waves to come back, and we go back to the little studio, and、uh, he's letting us pick records and stuff. I was just dazzled, not just by the music, but also just sitting there looking at this guy having a ball with in between two turntables, entertaining. Hundreds, maybe thousands of people with this incredible music, and I, I just, I thought, wow, this was like the first time I took an airplane ride in a little Piper Cub、uh, at my uncle's in New Jersey, up around New York, and I thought I wanted to be a pilot. I mean, music,、uh, and I think it seemed to move me more than the, the friends of mine. But anyway, that was basically. The first like uh, uh, life-changing experience for me, and for, where I got hooked on、uh, rhythm and blues. Of course, they were all brand new records, but they were new to the public, new to us.、Uh, 
records, you know, from the major companies, uh, Phil Chess and Norman Erdogan and Morris Lee, who actually is in that area, of course, uh, were paying to get the records played. And a lot of these DJs made little, if any, money on those small stations. But um, yeah. anyway, that was, uh, that was where I got hooked. And then I had no clue where it was going. What about collecting? Did you start collecting records at that time too? Were you buying those hits that uh, that Porky was spinning? And how did you get into collecting the rare stuff? Well, I'll tell you the truth. Uh, I was uh, me and my girl were uh, one of a half a dozen, maybe couples in our high school that went to the record hops dances that the DJs, like in a lot of cities, I assume. I've never been there. Uh, but in addition to uh, the record ops that Porky had, uh, Barry Kay, Jay Michael, Perry Marshall, and uh, they'd, they'd take, you know, their little speaker and Kuka Fran and all the 45 RPM, they'd go out to these schools and churches and little halls. So, But what got me into collecting, I, I was starting to get some music. Porky was, you know, they were new records. There was no no secret in those days or reason to keep them on mystery uh as they were later but uh yeah and i did start to get some of those but what got me into collecting the rare records is when we went to these record hops uh let's say just for illustration there were 100 or 200 let's say 100 uh, young people there 90 of them would be standing around watching because the DJs would bring their radio records. You couldn't dance to hand clapping and Maybelline and Tutti Frutti, you know what I mean? So, right. uh, uh, so uh, what I started to do was go to some of the tri-state area record shops that specialized in rhythm and blues and made some good friends. Jeannie Gentile, Gentile's Records in the South, those Marty Sugar downtown, Adiz, it was out in Charlotte in Washington. And I kind of made an arrangement with them that uh, if they would uh, get not only the hits, but, but all the uh, uh, record promotion men and distributors and companies, you know, that supplied their records, get all the DJ copies, especially uh, what I was my main target eventually of uh, unknown artists on independent labels. It seemed that was where the really great stuff. So I started um, buying up records. They let you listen. Most of the shops you could take something or they'd have a booth or a player there, you know, uh, uh, for the customers uh, in the old days. So anyway, uh, I would go through records that maybe they hadn't hadn't sold rhythm of those and all the promotional copies and everything and records. I'm sure, I don't care if they were on the radio or not, uh, just as well as they weren't. And uh, look for the uh, the jump tunes, the up-tempo funky rhythm that the kids got off on, and the also uh, the love songs, the uh, the words, the the records that had a great melody and great words. Love found, love lost, love lost and found again. You know, but they told a story. The girls especially responded to that because everybody was there to have a good time. But they especially would like to have a chance to dance with uh, a guy they wanted to meet. In any case, 
what I started to do to get around to your question here uh, about collecting was I would start to take uh, a handful or a little box of these records. And amazingly, uh, especially uh, Jay Michael, well, Barry too, and, 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 and Perry Marshall, uh, might have been with Porky as well, but they were really receptive. I said, hey, here's some of our favorite, we, would you want to play these? Here's, you know, like uh, three or four fast ones, and here's some slow ones, you know. And they were very receptive to that, amazingly. I don't know that it was my personality that did it, but bottom line is, <clears throat> When they played those records, all of a sudden, instead of 90% of the people watching, and sometimes fights starting or who knows what, uh, 90% were on the dance floor. And so pretty soon they were welcoming me. Oh, what do you got? What do you have this way, this way? And, um, and finally, to get to the point here, uh, the kids in my school and uh, some other one, you know, said, you know, Bob, why don't you play? I wound up to make a long story short, getting this massive two Magnavox that just had come out. They thought was more, one was more than I needed. I got two big Magnavox speaker cabinets that had four coaxial cable speakers in each one, 10 or 12 inch with a tweeter in the middle. Uh, and I got two of them. The guy rewired it, uh, the radio, the guy that bought them for me. Uh, series of parallel hog, he did it with Macintosh. It was two amps in those days. And so you could feel as well as hear the sound. And we used a van and my dad's station wagon to take it around to set up two friends of mine. Bottom line is, <clears throat> it was almost like a snowball rolling downhill that kept getting, picking up more and getting bigger as it grew. I always said that what happened starting at that point was like, I had a rich dad and I was a surfer and he'd send me to Australia, wherever the biggest waves were. And I caught the biggest one in history and rode it all the way to the shore. Wow. 15 years, it would do up. And, uh, uh, but uh, anyway, uh, so I actually started playing at the school dances at McMurray South Hills of Pittsburgh and then another sort of Bethel Park and up different schools. They wanted this guy with these great dance records and this, uh, and the, the big bad, uh, sound machine, <laughs> they call it, to do their dances. So all of a sudden, a lot of the radio DJs weren't getting calls to do record ops. And I was at the Catholic schools, uh, uh, and some little halls, uh, Lake Joanne, and, and on and on. You wouldn't know that these names are meaningless, I guess. But anyway, pretty soon, it was almost like uh, a business was going. And uh, I did a lot of them for, for the church, you know, just for gratis. But anyway, it became such a big deal that when I... Uh, uh, I, I, I just could hardly believe what was happening. And I knew they weren't ever, and I still know that today. They never came to see me tell jokes or tap dance. You know, it was the music that resulted in everything that happened here. And it wasn't just, anyway, uh, uh, I, hopefully that uh, gives you an idea of, uh, of, of how, why I got into collecting. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, the next step, I guess, uh, as I, you know, as the years rolled on here, uh, if you want me to go on with it. Uh, sure, I'm uh, wondering how you got into DJing and uh, Tri-State Record Store 
and exploding with all of these clubs at the same time. That's an awful lot of things happening at the same time. It was. It was absolutely, it went, when I first started to play, you know, at YMCA's and schools, all these little places uh, in the early 50s. Uh, no, I'm sorry, in, in the mid and, and, and latter 50s, 56, 57. Uh, uh, the, the, the crowds were unbelievable. I don't know, they were coming from everywhere. And uh, uh, bottom line is, uh, the next thing, I guess, was uh, Barry Kay mm -hmm. uh, was one of the hottest DJs. And he got caught up in the payola thing. Well, he was one of our favorite. We, we, when we double date, went to his dances. We'd get two or three, sometimes three couples into a garden. Uh, but when we went to uh, uh, Barry's dances, uh, we always anyway. He leaves. He uh, I started to go to college at WNJ, very good university in uh, Washington, Pennsylvania, south of Pittsburgh. And uh, we always went there on the weekends to Barry Kay's dances. He had maybe a hundred kids, maybe a little more from time to time there, but it was fun. Uh, I take the records anyway. I started to college, and I was very, very disenchanted. It was like more geography, more more high school. And one day, I jumped in my little hot rod that I had, and and drove down uh, to the Masonic Temple, and uh, the uh, it was locked up. So I sat there and just looked. I was getting ready to leave, and here comes a guy down and pulls a cat and opens the door. I go across here. It was, he was the manager. I guess was out to lunch. So I, I asked him. I said, do, do, do you still, "Whatever happened to the dances here? Do you still have the dances?" I said, "Oh God!" He said, "Very guy got caught up in that payola thing. He's he's out in California. I think he's selling insurance." And nah, nah. I said, "Well, I've been doing some little gigs here and there with some music that's the kids are going crazy for." I said, "If I would." Is it possible I could rent this and uh, try to start something up on here? And he said, <laughs> kids, you can forget that. And I said, uh, uh, what, excuse me, why? I said, he said, pal, this place costs $40 a night. Well, in those days, I guess it was like 400 but I had saved up a lot of money working hard for college. And I said, well, what if I gave you six months in advance? His eyes open like saucers. He grabs me by and in two minutes we had a contract done. I said, I want to make sure I got an option if this works after six months to continue. By the time the Christmas holidays came around, we had kids coming down, passing their own school down through from in Pittsburgh and all around Washington County. That place that was meant to hold two or three hundred, we had six hundred kids packed into it. Wow. It was fifty cents a head. The next day, I was at uh, Jack Gardner. He was a comedian. We cracked each other up. He, he was one of the kids that helped me out uh, when I ran the dances. And, and Buddy Fuhrer, his sister, was a great dancer. I used to dance with her. Anyway, they would uh, they helped me haul the stuff out and set it up all the time. And our girlfriends sold the pop, checked the coats. And anyway, uh, what year was that, Bob? Okay, this was like 58. Ooh, okay. And so uh, I was at uh, 
Jack's mother, Shirley, she was uh, horrible. She was she, she was like the Jewish mom, but she wasn't Jewish. She uh, wanted to. Uh, she took her dad or her husband off on a semi thing and had him into a his own home remodeling company. She she looks at me when I come in. She says, Bob. Jack told me you took in three hundred dollars. Is he big BS? He said, "Mom, we there were people outside with money in their hands, so we couldn't get in." And I said, "Yeah." She said, "That's like a month's salary." <laughs> she said, "Listen, I'm in these women's groups, um, and I don't know if it's, uh, what it was, but anyway." Uh, uh, parent teacher said, "I know what it but Anyway, she said, "You know these uh, my, these kids are driving all the way down here from all over the South Hills area instead of going to their own school dances. So you need to get a place up here near Pittsburgh, and you better get a big place." Yeah, she like told me, "I'm going to put you in business," and I never. Uh, it's kind of an emotional experience to go through here. I never really remember thanking her, but uh, she told me about a place over in South the Hill, South Park, where our kids uh, went. It was a big arena, a Bethel Park arena that they had uh, banquets and special events and even skating a couple of nights and and stuff like that. So she gave me the name. I grew up and see Paul Abbott. Told him what. I had been doing with these little dances. Uh, would he want to give it a try? I made a mistake and made him a 50-50 partner. He said, yes. <laughs> he said, well, I'm not open on Thursdays. If you think you can get people to school get out or college get out on Thursday. I said, whatever you have, let's try it. Within a few uh, months, we had over a thousand people in that place. Uh, and... Uh, then another big uh, similar facility up in the, in the Allegheny Valley. This was in 19, early 1960. Uh, and then you're asking me about uh, how did I uh, obtain the records that were the key to this. Let me, let me deal with that. I had people in Pittsburgh, as I mentioned, in uh, R&B record shops that were, and they got most of these promotional records for free. I still paid them the 50 cents a piece or a dollar a piece for, for their effort. And, uh, uh, but what I did is when people came up uh, and said, oh my God, what was that last work? What was that last work? Uh, uh, Jack Gardner especially would say, oh, that's Max Monster. And they'd say, Oh, okay, <laughs> you know, because uh, he knew I wanted to keep everything a secret because that was my, uh, the, the ammunition, you know, that was that was my stock in trade, was it the mystery fact element. Uh, anyway, uh, then some, uh, uh, another club came along. It was a Vegas-style nightclub, and the Vogue Terrace, another club, had opened with young adult college high school and put him out of business. It was the big place with the two big DJs, Clark Race and uh, Larry Aiken, TV and radio, uh, the two biggest promoters, the Tambellini brothers, Pete and uh, Louis, and the uh, and the owner of the Vogue Terrace, uh, Elmer Willett. He also produced some records. Um, and they put the white elephant out of business. So. I went out and saw the lady and told her what was going on up in the Allegheny Valley. And 
in the South Hills at these two big things. And uh, the music was uh, was the key. Uh, and uh, she said, well, you see, my Mrs. Sigmund and Anne Kamek. And uh, the old man had died and left them half of McKeesport in White Oak, where his club was and the trucking company. And, his, and what I always did was put myself in the other person's place and then instead of just talking about what I wanted to do. And I told her the operations we had, and she said, Bob, you seem like such a nice young man dressed up in your suit. She said, but uh, there's a place that uh, opened uh, just for Monroeville, and no, we had a couple of people try, no one's been able to. I said, Miss Sigmund, they are getting their acts for free by telling them if they don't play an engagement in Pittsburgh, they will never get their record played here again. And I know how to stop that with the HEVA that will blacklist them immediately. They advertise on TV and radio, and I have recordings of the advertisements that since a friend of mine worked at the station and told me those uh, it's a violation of FCC regulations, the Federal Communication Commission, to uh, have any announcements run that are not logged and paid for. Oh. And I said, I happen to know that they are like, you know, so to make a long story short, I called the uh, and, uh, for the owner, manager, general manager of the TV and radio station for Clark Grace and Maria Aiken. And, uh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So anyway, I told Mrs. Sigmund that I had a plan. And I said, I have, the, I plan to book the biggest 10 rhythm and blues acts in the world for 10 consecutive weeks. And I did. Little Richard, Bo Diddley, Chuck Berry, uh, Shirelle Scotia's Drifters, uh, little Anthony. Anyway, <clears throat> I said, I'm going to do that. Plus, I'm going to put in a big theater sound style sound system that young people have never experienced. And even though it was 20 years before disco, some primitive effect, you know, a mirror ball, some neon, some special effect. Wow. And I'm going to do a big point. I said, I know what I'm, what, what I'm looking at. Jeez. She? <laughs> you were still in college at the time? You know what? I was a 20-year-old 20, 20 kid, and she turned this million-dollar supper club hotel would look like over to this 20-year-old kid. Oh, I told her, instead of you working out there, and, and and you should be home having tea with your friends, you know, she chuckled. Uh, instead of, uh, I knew they were losing money. I said, instead of maybe breaking even, you know, you come up with a number that's fair to you and fair to me. And win, lose, or draw, you will get paid the first year of every month forever. And I said, you're welcome to talk to the people. She said, Bob, wait a minute. She looks at her daughter and she says, and I think he could do it. Uh. And when she turned, it was probably the most emotional time and the biggest break of my life. Wow. And when that place, when I opened with Chuck Berry, he was the first act. Smokey Robinson and the Merkel was the second act. Oh. <laughs> was the third week. Uh, Smokey was there when his girlfriend was in the group, okay? <sighs> and, uh, you know, when I opened the Vogue Terrace that they thought could never be beat with all the big promoters and DJs and the money and the act entertainment for free and the advertising for free, they lasted one week. Jeez.
we they were getting like twelve hundred or so when we opened Cherbury. We were packed like sardines, uh, about fifteen hundred people, and people that came that went to the Volterra Center were trickling in later. They said everybody's coming down. There's nobody up there. So the the week that Smokey was there, the following the second week of operation, I actually gave somebody an hour's worth of records and wanted to drive up to see myself. I drive in this long windy lane with these gigantic pools with lights on the top and this big lot that held maybe six eight hundred cars possibly. Mm-hmm. There were five cars there. Oh, man. <laughs> and, uh, and a little later, he called them in. And I know this story because the gal that booked their banquets later came down and worked for me at the White Elephant. She said that the old man was so PO'd, he called the DJs in, he called the promoters in, he threw the ashtrays, he, threw, he screamed at him, he said, you know, you got, you have, said, you know, you have all the power, you have the entertainment, you have the media, you have all this, and you're letting this little amateur down the street kick your ass. <laughs> and uh, so that you. was it. And and they knew that he would, and he, in fact, he, suppose, from what she said, he, he actually asked the one guy for some explanations, and he said, well, they've got the music. So, but it's some music or something that the kids are going crazy for that nobody knows. We don't know what it is. He said, well, well, I noticed because my kid goes down. He said, what? You're been a partner here and your kids are going to... Anyway, threw them all out, the place closed. And uh, they, he evidently was aware that he couldn't compete with what we had, the biggest acts, the best music, the big sound, you know, everything else. The number of clubs grew because, you know, once everybody that had a restaurant out of business, a theater out of business, a banquet hall out of business, they started calling me. Hey, you know, you run this thing. I heard about this. You know, come up here, take a look at my place in the North Hills or Beaver. <laughs> so pretty soon we had a dance everywhere, uh, a dance club. And uh, it, it's almost as though I was, like Shakespeare said, Horatio, there's more to heaven and earth than ever dreamed of your philosophy. And we are but actors on a stage reading the lines that are written for us. And somehow I call it God, call it the universal intelligence. I think I was just going to, you know, acting out the, my part. I want to know how much you love me and if you ever Yeah. 
with you all these clubs going on, and you've got the then current R&B acts playing there, like Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and so on. The dance part of it, people playing DJs, your DJs playing records in between uh, the before the act went on and between the acts and we, so on. Well, well, yeah, and we did shows, and later I had the Wildwood Lodge in the North Hills, the Bethel Park Arena in the South Hills, and the White Elephant East. What I did is I called the agents and I said, okay, <clears throat> I said, I want to book the Isley Brothers, okay. All right, well, they get $600. That's like 60000 in today's method, but $600. I said, okay, and they do three shows. Uh, now, yes, they'll do three shows, like 40-minute shows. I said, well, okay. I said, well, I'll take it. I'll take. I'll send you the 600 I said, oh, but one thing. The three shows will be in three different locations. Oh, man, okay. We will have a setup of equipment in the Wildwood Lodge North. That's where Mike played for me later. The Bethel Park Arena South and the White Elephant East. I'll have limos to move them from place to place. We run, you know, they'll do one show early at nine, and all they have to do is no through. They don't have to go on that. They do uh, just like 20 minutes of a couple of their hits, uh, you know, three, four, five, six records, whatever. At one place, we'll run them to another place. They do the show, and then at 10 and the 11 o'clock show at the White Elephant. They said, well, that's crazy. They're not going to. I said, well, they're, they're in, I said, let me talk to the manager then. I said, aren't these people in business to get the most exposure possible to the greatest number of fans and potential record buyers? He said, well, yeah. I said, well, you're going to see 3,000 people by doing it this way instead of 1,000. Going 3,000 shows in one club. Brilliant. So that's, and I bought them then for... The six, I, it cost me instead of six hundred that someone else would pay per location, two hundred dollars per location. Wow! And was the music being played at these shows? These uh, rare, obscure R and B records. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! I had to get people. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I skipped your one question. There is, did we? play music yeah uh, we play music uh, dance music all night on the big sound system uh the shows would just be uh like a half an hour break you mm -hmm. know during the uh dj but incredible you're playing old records with the current acts and that didn't happen anywhere else that i can think of i well listen i here's what i did i uh when now, you know, to answer another question, I'm sorry, but uh, just keep rambling on. But there's so many things in so, uh, a short period of time here that were important to what happened here. Uh, I had to get a when I found this magic, you know, you can't fire a gun without a bullet. My magic, the magic ball, was the music. And what it is, is it takes I produced records, of course, I had my own record company and did some of the Sean Dells early stuff. But, but it's five basic ingredients. The soundtrack, lead singer, background harmony, the melody that you can't get out of your head. It's so great. And the words, the lyrics. I added a sixth ingredient. What was that? They didn't know what it was. It was a mystery. And it drove people crazy. <laughs> and all week long in the colleges and schools, they were talking, oh, he wrote, you should have been there. He played like every dance and every radio show. I played a couple uh, new things that had never been heard before. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you had to keep it. It's like a box of Cracker Jacks. Yeah, yeah. You, there was always a little prize. You never knew when it was coming. <laughs> That's what it was. Okay, the records, uh, to obtain them, 
I needed a lot of incredible stuff quick. So what I did is, in addition to uh, when other people were taking vacations at the beach, I went, I used my vacations to travel. Uh, all the records weren't made in Pittsburgh. They were made in New York and Philly and Chicago and Detroit and L.A. and Nashville. So that's where I went. And I made a deal. The first place uh, gave me, you know, it just, it just, though this was, I was just act, acting the lines or saying the lines that were written for me. I go down, I hear WLAC. All the stations, the early ones that played Rhythm Blues, were stations like when Elvis first was, people said he was poisoning, by shaking his hips, he was poisoning our children, you know. And when the black music came in, you're poisoning. These were brave guys working on these years early on. Uh, but bottom line is, uh, there was one station that was not a little 250 or 1,000 watt station. It was a 50,000 watt clear channel covered three quarters of the United States of America at night in Nashville, WLAC. Yeah. And uh, they uh, jocks down there, Gene Nobles and Hoskins, a number of great guys. I've, 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 uh, and so uh, their biggest sponsor, and at night you could get their signal across almost all the country. And Mark, you seem like you're, you're very aware of this. Uh, I don't make this stuff up. It sounds incredible, but it's all for real things that really happen. Anyway, bottom line is, uh, I went to uh, the first city. I had been buying records from Randy's, and there were actually three shops because of this all this Nashville uh, music coming out, other than the blues, uh, coming out on WLAC. So uh, Ernie's, Buckley's, and Randy's. So I took a week and went down. And Randy's, or uh, Ernie's and Buckley's, uh, it, uh, it was okay. I found a couple items here and there. But I got to uh, Randy's, and uh, uh, there were some gals working there. There was a kid named uh, Mark, incredibly, uh, <laughs> and uh, not the one I'm on the phone with. I'm sure. No, but, uh, uh, and uh, <laughs> I actually, uh, they had, they... Uh, were a mail order company too you know the, in those days there was no ebay or amazon you know you, the postman brought a delivery and collected the money and cod and sent it back it was a cumbersome system but anyway uh, uh bottom line is to i'm trying to make this quick <laughs> uh this started another key in addition to uh the other things i've talked about this was crucial critical what happened down there i get there and i had uh, i usually went a week to la or their show you know it's you got to spend some time and dig through find the shops that handled the rhythm and blues so anyway i wound up at uh, at randy's record shop it's actually in gallatin just a regular place just outside of nashville so uh uh and and I, uh, you know, I gave some money, uh, tried to, I said, so you know, I'm serious. And they, they like most of us had uh, a system available. So I said, I just need 30 seconds, the first 30 seconds of as many records as I can get through. And here, there's records are 50 cents a piece. Yeah, there's 50 bucks. You know, I'm going to put it in a register. I'm buying at least 100. Okay, so <laughs> I come a long way. So <clears throat> when I was in the second day, there was a, a gentleman in there older than the employees <clears throat> and a kind of a fine guy. I go back and uh, 
he left the mark left the set up there for me and i'm uh, going through uh, more records and more anyway to make a long story short i'm checking out and uh uh, at the end of the day, I had, uh, I, it wasn't, I think I had a, 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 a second suitcase. And uh, anyway, bottom line is I'm checking out and this all looks over at me. Like, uh, and uh, I could say, you know, but I did, it's kind of, he said, uh, you're the guy from up north. I said, uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You know, he said, you got an extra minute. I want to talk to you. He said, I, I'm curious about something. I said, okay. So I moved my stuff over and I'm talking. Turns out he said, well, I'm Randy. I said, okay. And Randy Wood. Okay. He said, do you know we are the largest mail order record store in the world? And Mark said, when you checked out here yesterday, you had your whole case for Buffer, uh, full. You didn't buy one record out of the hundred thousand that are on there, uh, you know, on our list. He said, "I'm just curious as hell. No, what are you doing?" <laughs> I said, "I said I want." I, he said, "Mark said you were in the, the, that uh, those racks I put in the back with all this stuff. Nobody wants to talk about it. They go, where's the hits? Where's the hits? Play the hits." And you're going through all of this stuff. He said, he said, you got another, I said, I got all, all kinds of stuff. He said, he grabs my, he said, come here. He opens the door and goes back. This evidently was some kind of uh, manufacturing. I don't know what it was originally, but this whole big back room, there were people back there and, and show, oh, racks all over the place with records they were packing to mail out. That's what was their business. And uh, he walks me over and in the corner of this room, there's this little triangular like office, I guess it was, where a manager would look out and could see what the employees were, if they were goofing off or not. He opens the door, picks on and says, that's the LAC records. I said, excuse me? He said, WLAC. W said, didn't you talk market about that's how you talk? Yeah. But he said, you know, all the black artists, there's thousands of them trying to get you know, that heard the harp tone story and this story and this, and you know, they want to get out of the get and they're making records, thousands of them all over this country. And most of them can't even get their records played in their own town. And WLAC, if you listen, you probably know every, I think it was every half hour or something, they'd throw something in, was like their wax to watch, pick the clock, something, you know, uh, a new group that, you know, you might be hearing this one in the future. It's a possible record that may hit. Well, so groups that wanted or desperate to get their records played would nail their records to WLAC. And they got a, a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, on average, a couple hundred a month. What they didn't know was, and if they appeal, if you didn't put a fifty dollar bill in the in the sleeve, they'd never even listen to it. And uh, but the point is, he said, but these, uh, you know, they're my friends and my best friends, the DJs, the the program director session. I'm their biggest sponsor for God's sake. He said, at the end of each month, they're not in the records business and they're not in the storage business. Where do you think? What do you think happens to those records? I said, well, they come in your back door. He said, you got it. And he said, that's, he said, uh, I go through a lot of that. And I said, well, then you know what I know. Sometimes you'll go through a stack of records and you'll keep saying, who is the idiot? 
they put up the money for this piece of crap, you know? <laughs> but then you will find one that has all the ingredients to bake the cake, and it gives you chills. And I said, that's the ones that I want. Mm. He said, you're, you're Bob? I said, yeah. I said, he said, come on back. Let me, he said, I want to run something by you. I know he later founded Dot Records, by the way, and had uh, he's the one that had Pat Boone doing 2D for the Elba, the, uh, the black uh, uh, Little Richard records that already sold, and he sold millions of them. Oh, terrible. Anyway, but he knew a good, he knew business. He says, here's what I'll do if you want to. You can't come down here every month, right? I said, no, I don't think so. Maybe you never see me. He said, I've got all these records, and they're the ones that you want that nobody wants. He said, I go through those, and I know what you're saying, but occasionally there are some really incredible things I find. I said, yes, that's what I'm looking for. He said, well, you're, you're looking for independent. I said, stop. You're going to say unknown artist on independent label. He said, God, I said, that's, that's usually what I buy. He said, well, listen, here's what I'll do. If you want to do this, and you can end at any time, when you get new record shipped there in boxes of 25 typically, he said, I will go through stuff even more than I typically do anyway. I have a pretty good ear. I see what you want. You want the funky, the dance kind of stuff, not the screams up there for the up-tempo jump tunes. You're dumb tune. Yeah. And you like the love songs with the great, the words that have a story that brings you to tears, but, you know, uh, that have the great melody and the great vocal group harmony and stuff. I, 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 I guess. He said, well, we're on the same page. He said, okay. He said, here's what I'll do. I'll put together, and the first month Sunday, I'll put together a box of 25 of the best, the cream of the crop records, trust me, okay? And our records are 50 cents a piece. Whether they were prone, I got for no, that's, that's, what the, that's what we sell for. So that 1250, the, the COD charges and delivery, so like for about 15 bucks a month, I'll send you a box of the best stuff from LAC, from all the artists all over this country that nobody could otherwise find uh, for for uh, fifteen bucks a month. I said, "You got it." <laughs> and uh, I and sometimes on the holiday I get two boxes from him. But I did the same thing, uh, and again I could go on forever. And this this story took fifteen years to unfold, and I'm trying to do it here in just an hour for you. But, but uh, he was the longest running. He sent me. Could you imagine this uh, eighteen, twenty year old kid? You know, like six, eight times. Well, some of them didn't send every month, so maybe some months had before boxes. But the postman would be ringing on the door, and I'd go out. And these weren't just any old records out of a scrap pile, like people thought. Like I used to get records from Wars or Murphy's Five. And I'd never been in their place, so uh, this is how I got them. And what I did is. Uh, can you imagine the joy? I couldn't wait to play those 25 uh, up-tempo jump-to-end ballads, every every box that would come in. And uh, I used all my college money, but I didn't give a crap. And then I started to make money. So, what's it called? so that's basically, and Miriam, I think I told you the story when you visited me in Pittsburgh uh, a while back. But bottom line is, 
that is that was the beginning then i made a deal with the best rhythm and blues shops or sometimes a, a guy in a record distributorship or that promoted records uh independent promotion man or something but i got a guy for los angeles uh for chicago for detroit for philly for new york for, for you know there were like seven of them all together every month i'd get anywhere from four to eight but depending uh, in, in, in when that guy would show up, it made my day and I'd go through. And the, these weren't just 25 records at random. These were sent to me by people who, uh, you know, loved rhythm and blues and new music. And uh, this was the cream of the crop. So that is the story of how I got all these records. Let me hold your hand. You 
kind of leads me into something else if you want me to uh, to jump to another subject and that's the uh, yes would that the, be the record record store the record label or wzum and you being a disc jockey sweetheart you're either good or lucky and i think from all the success you've had you're you're, you're smart <laughs> uh, the, the, the tri-state uh, record shop we had a, a huge bin uh, along, there was a counter in front, there was a huge bin. And every week, I didn't want to risk ever playing filler or spiritual records. My theory was I had, well, later on the radio, but mainly with, initially with the dance clubs, I had maybe two, three, four hours. And they usually came early and stayed late. That's what my friends always used to say, because they didn't want to miss a record. And they knew there was always like a box of Cracker Jacks. There was always a couple new ones. You never knew when it was coming. And the crowd went wild, as they say, every time. They they used, they'd get to know the regulars that something was coming that they never heard before every night. It was part of the show. Um, anyway, uh, the... Um, so the trice the, the what it was is no one knew this and you're, you're learning one of my secrets i never told anybody because i didn't want to give anybody to be able to duplicate or throw the wrench into anything that i had going to to get these records i only wanted to, i didn't want to risk playing a good record or pretty good or fair or i just wanted out of a one to ten i wanted a nine or a ten a lot of the records i got were well the, these guys sent me good stuff there were no ones to six it was m more like sevens and eights that were really good most guys would be deliriously happy to get them and play them but i so i wouldn't be tempted to play them i took all the seven and eights and that's why the tri-state record shop happened ah. no one knew but every week i would go in and I would fill it up with new stuff. And people would come in and they'd go nuts going through those records. <laughs> and uh, uh, they'd always find something. They'd say, where did these come from? And uh, I never told anybody. Wow. Anyway, so that was your shop. Your, that was exclusively your shop, that right? That was the Tri-State Record Center. And I think, if I recall, uh, one of my friends told me that he was with you when you looked at that. And mm -hmm. you had a look as though you were looking at the Holy Grail or something. That's right. Ray Nally, uh, rest his soul. Do you remember Ray? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was Ray Nally who took me there many years ago. And, and yeah, he was in complete awe. He was, he was like and, being in Mecca. He, when he described your reaction, he said he looked at you like you were seeing the Holy Grail or something. <laughs> and, and he said, you know, you were like in a trance. And he said... I, but the only time I've seen that kind of a look uh, related to music was that's why that store was there. And I never told anybody until now. It was really to get rid of the stuff that I was passing. No on. kidding. Deliriously happy. They found their monster at Tri-State. Well, it was one that I didn't. It was actually a record I discarded. That'll tell you what the nines and tens that I played wow. were like. Okay. And were you playing those nines and tens on WZUM? No, uh, I have two separate sets of records, and I didn't want a million or a hundred thousand. I'd rather have 10,000 records that were the most incredible, had all the ingredients to bake the cake. Yeah, me too. 
So, so basically, I gave up a lot of great stuff, and we sold it at Tri-State. Mm -hmm. But bottom line is, uh, that's why the Tri-State Record Center, it was actually, a lot of people would come there and they'd go nuts. This wasn't here, like, oh my God, you know, yeah, I'll take this one. I mean, they, there'd be, uh, and they, I usually did it uh, on a Monday. The only day I didn't have something going on. And they got to know, like Tuesday, there'd be a whole bunch of people uh, going through there to see what uh, what they could find. Anyway, that was the Tri-State Record uh, thing, and it wasn't a money-making thing. It, well, it turned out to be a positive thing, but uh, uh, bottom line is uh, when I, you know, I was too busy with all the clubs and the and the, we had Romac and Viscount Records going, and we had. Uh, oh, tell us about that. Don't don't slide past that. Tell us about Romac. Well, the, 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 the dance club chain grew enormously. In fact, we had the largest chain they told me in the world. Uh, there were uh, uh, 24 clubs over all the years, but in there were uh, over a dozen just in the 60s when it was red hot mm -hmm. and uh, all over the tri-state area. Uh, uh, and I had jocks playing, of course, I couldn't be everywhere. When I first started, I had, before, up until I had six dances, I, I had one on every night, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, every night but Monday. But then I realized if I could trust some other DJs and help them with the music if they didn't have it, uh, I could put them all on the weekend where I could double the crowds. So that's what we did. And wow. uh, that's when I started to hire uh, you know, like Ronnie Osmond, Rat, and, and uh, uh, Louie, and, and Mike, and, and all these guys. And uh, uh, in fact, uh, uh, Mike came to me uh, uh, once, and he said, Bob, i got to talk to you. And I had known him. We had swapped some records and stuff uh, in the late, uh, when he got out of the Navy. He wasn't there when I started and had these things going in 50... Uh, six seven eight nine well he got there out of the neighbor about nine so uh he wanted to be part of the show we're talking about mad mike at this point yes, right yes so yes. And yeah that's, that's how that yeah he's so i i said uh he said bob i have all the i said mike please i know i've i've you know we've, we've talked records before i said i'm opening a new club in the north hills called the wildwood lodge it's the only out of the three valleys the north south and east I have clubs everywhere except North. I said, this is going to be it. And I think we're going to pack them in. I said, I haven't really picked out a guy for that yet. I said, uh, we'll start you with the Wildwood Lodge. And if it works, like, I think it's going to work. Uh, I'll put you in Teen Land on another night, maybe the Sugar Shack out there and so forth. So he wound up actually working eventually at the record shop. I helped Mike a lot and he helped me a lot. Mm -hmm. So it was a mutual admiration society while it lasted. We put so much hurt with that Tri-State Record Shop on National Record Mart. They eventually made him a deal proposition. After I couldn't, I got so many things going on, opening clubs out of town, the record company, the uh, uh, running all these clubs. Uh, I couldn't be uh, there all the time. So uh, uh, Just going back to Romac, though, how many records did you do? And I remember you talking about the fact that it was a full-color label, and uh, could you tell us a little bit about Roma and when it began? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so anyway, that's this is why I went uh, 20 hours a day, seven days a week, and I loved it. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I loved, you know, music and seeing people's response. We, uh, 
uh, Joe Rock that managed the Skyliners uh, uh, had a couple hits and then he had trouble getting his records played and he had uh, I didn't know but he had blackballed uh, uh, some of the guys that wouldn't know a hit if they saw it and all this and got him fired but anyway uh, he uh, was a big influence in, produce, in me getting into the record business so we opened Viscount Romac. Viscount was going to be uh, the Skyliners and more like a top 40 thing. And Romac was going to be the rhythm and blues. Okay. So uh, uh, we actually uh, recorded There Comes Love by the Skyliners and we did Let's Be. That was on uh, Viscount, the Unplayable. And I wanted not just a plain blue or black or green label or something. So the Romac label, if you've seen it, is like a multicolor thing going around the perimeter. And uh, it was quite, who cares, but it, it was, a, it was a, the, the label was a work of art, the record was. Uh, I was that proud of the records. But anyway, we did uh, uh, Leroy and the Enchantments, a group on Romac, uh, Lonely Heart, Great record. Uh, the, the Comes Love and the Lonely Heart were like regional. They never hit big, but we actually sold a hundred and some thousand of those two. Wow! Uh, so uh, between them, uh, yeah. And then and then they got a lot back. <laughs> and and tell us yeah. where the rec record label name came from, please. Romac. Oh yeah, actually it was uh, Robert Bob. It was, uh, Mac, <laughs> there you go. Actually, I think I think uh, I think at first we tried to re reserve the name uh, Bob Mac for Bob Mac, and it wasn't available. I said, "Well, how about Robert? How about Romac?" And that was available. Ah, okay. Was well, it be Bob Mac? Cool. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And and uh, and we had fun with it, but uh, it didn't. It wound up that uh, so the sessions we did for the Skylight Good was twenty four musicians or something, strings yeah. and elbows and uh, oh god, uh, all kind of stuff. Bob, we've heard uh, several of your radio shows from the day, and they're so action packed and incredible. How did you fit in the time to be a disc jockey as well? Well, that's that's how Mike got the radio show. Uh, bottom line is, uh, I one day uh, when all these dances were going and things were, you know, we had thousands, maybe thirty thousand kids packed into the. Some of the clubs were open two or three nights a week, and uh, uh, it, it was going so hot. All of a sudden, I realized that all these young people, college age, high school age, you know, like fifteen to twenty-five. There were tons of people under 15 and over 25 mm -hmm. that never experienced this, the dance club scene. It was incredible. And the, the music there. So all of a sudden I realized that, you know, there's no radio show that's playing. Not like, uh, of course, Chedwick was on here, but he played, uh, he, he played new records. You go to your record store and buy them, you know. But I did. I had something that was totally different. And as much as I used to work with him to pen to MC shows and promote the stuff, uh, my records were all mystery records, unknown. And I wanted to keep them that way because you had to come to my dance clubs or later listen to my radio show to hear them. 
I was the only place you could hear them. So we had a locked-in thing there. I actually had two sets of records. I had maybe 10,000, not a million. I didn't want a million because, you know, I just wanted the cream of the crop. I only had uh, maybe a half hour on a call radio or a couple hours at a dance hall to make believers out of the new people that are coming in. I didn't have time to play a good record. I only wanted to play monsters. I, there's another word I could use, but I won't. <laughs> wow, yeah, you could do that. I like that. They're, they were mothers, you know, so, uh, <laughs> but I, I wanted to kill people with every record, never play a good or mediocre record. That's why the some really good stuff will wind up at Tri-State Record Show. I didn't want to carry it and be tempted to play it. I realized at one point that most, the biggest part of the population, mm -hmm. maybe three quarters of it or two thirds, whatever, will never hear these records. Yeah. So then I figured there was a new radio station that had uh, WZUM. They were trying to complete with, compete with uh, Whammo, the port he was on. But I did something totally different. He played, you know, records that you could hear in every other city. They were great. You could go to your record store and buy them or they'd order them. Uh, my records you couldn't find, you couldn't buy. You may not even know what it was. So bottom line is... <clears throat> I went out, I made up a tape at my little home uh, recording studio, and it was a new station, WZUM. Uh, not the most powerful signal, it was a thousand water, but I used to uh, crank it up beyond the red lines. <laughs> the outer limits could hear it. But anyway, You're not I. You're supposed uh, to do that, Bob. Uh, yeah, that, I was a bad boy. It distorts the signal when you get to the and so, and I did something else. I used to like at the dances. I would emphasize the backbeat with the with the control knob, and people would say, "Oh man, what is that?" And I said, "So you know, I have your sounds better than mine." I said, "Just the way I played it. I drive the not the lead, the stuff that irritates you, the saxophone, but the backbeat." Oh, 
on the radio and at the dances did you mess with the speed i did at the dances i couldn't always do it on the radio oh, but that's 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 an interesting thing uh in fact i was going to bring that up when we talk about the speed adjustment that made hanky panky a hit and yeah that's what i was trying to lead you into tell us about the day that that record appeared in your record store at tri-state i understand that the snap record of Hanky Panky appeared there, and that started the legend of what happened with Hanky Panky and you going to go get a young man from Niles, Michigan. Let's get into that. Okay. Uh, the, uh, well, uh, again, this could take a week to tell you. I'll try to make it in a couple minutes here. Uh, the whole Tommy James discovery thing. 
uh, I'm going to leave a lot out, but the bottom line is uh, a guy that was going to Notre Dame, which is only, uh, I think, seven minutes south of Niles, Michigan, where Tommy James lived and where the record shop was that he worked in. And uh, he came in and uh, needed money to get back to school or something. And uh, he had a whole couple boxes of records. And uh, I think Bobby Marr, maybe it was like, no, it was, well, whoever was working there, I, I said, well, uh, go, go, go to take a look at this, see, you know, see what it's worth. The kid wants to sell his records. So uh, let, let's say there were 100 or 200, I don't know what it was, something like that. Bottom line is, uh, he had a bunch of different ones that he, I don't think he stole, but he probably got as a gift that weren't sold or cheap somewhere. Uh, it turns out he had a half a dozen, well, anyway, uh, I, we were listening to some, or looking through some of the stuff, and I had, uh, whether it was Bob the Bar, Mike, whoever was working it, well, I looked and they said, man, hey, Bob, this is it. Good stuff. There's a lot of like top forty stuff and things. I don't really know if we 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 didn't sell that kind of stuff or play it, you know. And the, the guy says, I I I need to get back to school, and uh, I can't ask my girlfriend's money for her dad for money. You know, can you can you help me? So can you do something? Bottom line is, I I told him I was working. You know, give the kid a hundred bucks or something, whatever. And and he was deliriously happy, and he got back to school. And in that box, I said, you know what? It was late in the day. I said, uh, the guy said, do you want me to just, whoever was working, said, do you want me to just put this out in the, the, the bin and, you know, uh, help yourself thing, helter skelter? Uh, I said, well, uh, you know, let me, let me, let me take it home and listen to a few of these things, see if there's anything that's, that's worth keeping. Uh, there were probably a half a dozen copies of Hanky Panky on Snap in there, okay? And, uh, it unfortunately was too slow. Uh, so what I did is I listened and then I said, you know, it just doesn't have the kick to it. So, and I said, you know what? And I, I took one and went over and we had adjustable speed at all the dance clubs to make records that were great, but ooh, not quite danceable. Uh, so I'm down here and raised them up a little bit. And uh, I told all the guys when they started uh, how to how that worked and how to to take the beats up or bring them down or whatever to make them danceable and how to run the lights and all that stuff i go over to the adjustable uh, feature and i sped it up to about 48 50 rpm and all of a sudden that my baby does the, you know like a ballad it's my baby does the happy pang like you know with the beat and all of a sudden that heavy backbeat it sounded really good so I gave all the copies to DJs and, uh, you know, it got such a response as I'll play it a couple times a night, you know, the reaction to this was insane and, uh, people would go crazy. Every, you know, 90% of the people are not trying to cram under a dance floor when it sings. So, uh, over the big sound system. So, uh, uh, bottom line is, uh, I, uh, I used to bring groups in, not only big names, but even, uh, 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 some of the groups that were uh, uh, even the Whalers or something, you know, that were uh, not a big name, that were big in Pittsburgh. So, with the with the Snap Forty Five, did, did you decide right then and there to go 
try to bring this artist to Pittsburgh? What happened was it was it was such an explosion of response at all the clubs, all the DJs played it a couple times. I mean, uh, it turns out that um, the uh, the people that were found out about my records and were bootlegging them, uh, uh, Itzy and uh, and uh, National and, and all the other uh, record dealers around, if they could find out what it was, they'd bootleg them and sell all that stuff. So. Yeah. Uh, bottom line is, uh, they, uh, Nick Sensi at the distributorship here, uh, uh, the biggest record distributor in Pittsburgh, uh, uh, had or found a copy and had, they sold like 80,000 or something. Yeah. Uh, from what I heard, that could be inflicted, I don't know. But anyway, it went crazy. It went on to number one on every radio station first week. Never happened before or since in history. My baby does the hanky pain. thing was red hot so that's when i uh tracked down uh uh jack well, the record shop 
in Niles, Michigan, Jack Deffenbaugh led me to the kid. He said, well, he's ready to quit. He's fed up. He's been playing since he was 12. He's 20 now. Not discouraged, you know. I said, well, can you give me his phone number? He said, well, you're wasting your time. I said, would you? I'll send you money. Whatever. Give me his phone. He finally gave me the number. That was Jack Deffenbaugh around at uh, the record shop. Uh, Tommy worked for him part-time. So I get a hold of uh, Tommy to make a long story. I told him, Tommy, I want you to come to Pittsburgh uh, and play. I've got a chain of clubs. We do as many as three a night. You could do two a night and uh, maybe for a couple weekends. He said, what kind of cool joke is this? Who is, you know, I said, Tommy, if you want, I said, I told you who I was, and I said, if you want, I'll send you the money in advance, okay? Your record is a hit here. He said, you're kidding me. So I said, it's a monster. <clears throat> and I, uh, bottom line is, I, 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 drove, I drove up there, uh, made a deal with him. He was a, he was a minor, had to be 21. I had his mother sign an orphan square thing. We, uh, no, first we brought him into Pittsburgh. I'm sorry. I brought him in. And when he came into Pittsburgh, before he could get to, through the Liberty Tunnel, he was on the radio. Every station was playing Hanky Panky. It was the number one everywhere. Okay. He went from playing in a Niles, Michigan bar for maybe a half a dozen drunks to playing for a, a thousand or more people at all these dance clubs we had in Pittsburgh over two weekends. One question. And, uh, two, two questions, actually, Bob. Uh, on that, uh, he didn't have a group. Did you put that group together in Pittsburgh? And secondly... Did when he called me, mm -hmm. he said, Bob, he, or we talked, he said, listen, or I went up there, he said, even if I wanted to do this, one of the Shondells that was killed in accident, one's in Vietnam, there aren't any Shondells anymore. There's just, there's just me. I said, Tommy... Let me see if I understand this. You're the lead singer. You're the front. I said, you're the show. Put a big one together. <laughs> you know, or we could do it here. So he, so he, uh, uh, he did. And then once we made a deal, and uh, I said, listen, I said, you, uh, oh, Jack Deffenbaugh, the owner of the record store that recorded the record, came in with him the second weekend mm -hmm. uh, to play more of my clubs. And when it was done, they were dumbfounded he went from being a, a, a nobody uh you know without any audience to uh, a mick jagger experience you know packed houses everywhere we took them yeah. and uh, they were flabbergasted and i and so we had uh, i always took the groups out to a late night uh, dinner or whatever <clears throat> after the shows and i sat down with uh, jack deffenbaugh and, and tommy were across uh, the stage. I actually got uh, the second when he came back in the, the next weekend to do the clubs. Uh, uh, I had him go out and interview a group. But let me get let me get that out right. Anyway, bottom line is I told him that uh, I had uh, my record company on my own, but uh, this thing is red hot. This is a breakout record in Pittsburgh, which used to be breakout lot of records in the good old days. I said you you need to get a manager you need to get a record level you need to get a booking agent you need to get a publicity agent you need to you need to get to new york you know you need to lock this up and take advantage of this momentum from this uh, uh radio and this this incredible 
a breakout in Pittsburgh. Did you name him Tommy James? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. His name was Thomas Jackson. That's right. And it was just the it was just the Shondells. Yeah. So about uh, and uh, that's the point I I want to make sure I cover for you too. Uh, bring these things up if I leave some of this stuff out because I'm covering a dozen different subjects. Okay. So so anyway, uh, we're sitting in a restaurant and they were talking for a while and Jack looked over at me. He said, "Bob, listen to me for a minute." He said, "We cannot believe what are you twenty twenty two years old." All that you have going on here, this whole chain of the pack of nightclubs and and and, and uh, uh, radio, everything, everything, record, all the stuff you're doing. He said, Bob, I don't have a clue where to go, what to do, a good deal from a bad deal. You've got to help this kid. I said, uh, <laughs> I, I said, Jack, I said, I would love to, but I said. I go seven days a week, twenty hours a day, building new clubs, running these clubs, the record uh, company, the the record shop, the uh, the concerts we do, the, all the you know. He said, Bob, I don't know what to do. I don't. He said, Listen, um, I got a contract. I'm his manager. I will sign this over to you, or you can redo what you can redo your own. I need you to 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 do exactly what you're saying needs done whatever whatever that takes and i just you know i just the kid the kid was looking at me like a puppy that was lost or something you know and i i just i said i don't so I, somehow i made arrangements with a lot of my djs people who worked with me club banners up to, to keep everything the record shops the record everything moving without me for a few years i put tommy on a plane I fly him to New York. I stash him in the city square where I always stayed in a suite. And he was 20. The legal age was 21, even though I had to go to the orphan's court to get a, a, a binding agreement. And every record company in New York heard of this breakout and wanted the record. It was, and I took him around. I, I made the rounds to Columbia, to Kama Sutra, to... Uh, to, to everybody, Atlantic, to everybody in town, I eliminated the guy who they said, uh, you know, basically was uh, the mob. And I don't care about that. I've dealt with tough guys before, but but they said he just paid enough for him to survive, but always need him, so they couldn't leave. You know, Mushrevi. Uh, so uh, I didn't go there. Well, he sent Red Schwartz Pornersman over you. That's somehow they found out where we were staying in the city square. And I had Tommy under another name and another school. And he was going nuts when he was in jail. But I didn't want uh, these, uh, you know, uh, sharks guys to get a hold of this, you know, you know, uh, uh, this kid until I made a deal. So I, I, I'm, I'm like what Tommy says that he went around with Chuck Rubin, who was one of my booking agents, New York booking agents. Uh, he did that to please him. And cause, uh, he, he settlement get, uh, some of the money that was due to him from ruler. Anyway, bottom line is, uh, I made the rounds and we were, I, I met with Jerry Wexinger and uh, Jerry Greenberg at uh, Atlantic and I decided, uh, I called him back, I said, uh, 
you're big you want the artists you appreciate uh you know the music i said i'll uh, we're gonna go with you they said come over tomorrow we'll put it together tomorrow next day my phone's ringing they had gotten a call from Mush lady roulette records attorneys Mush, that record was uh done by uh, originally uh by the raindrops on uh, uh jubilee and when tommy had heard a group do that and went in and recorded it in the basement of jack Dippin' boys radio station uh, uh they changed they just made up lyrics and the melody from what they remembered and it, it, that's an infringement on copyright that meant that if anybody in new york the courts you they're tough they you you collect uh, Pharrell and, and that one other guy ran into a problem with that, stealing someone's lyrics. <laughs> and got eight times is there with the settlement. So if a record does a million dollars, you pay eight million to the guy you stole it from. <clears throat> so Bush and his attorney, uh, he had purchased the publishing from Barry Greenwich, uh, uh, Greenwich and whatever their, uh, the team writing team was, to uh he owned the rights to the record uh to uh, the song so when tommy changed it that's an infringement of copyright so what morris's attorney told the companies and they knew is true that whatever they made on it they would be sued and have to pay eight times what they made in a settlement whoa they told us we're sick but bob we can't there's nothing we can do uh, Mush has the rights to this song. It was altered. Uh, that's a freedom of copyright. We can't risk uh, getting involved in it, and we're 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 sick over this. So I said, "Well, okay. I don't know that much about the business, but I trust what you're saying. Nobody else is going to take it either." So I had to go see Mush Levy. So I tell you what, there's one thing about me, I probably weighed at that time 140 pounds soaking wet, but I tell you what, I was fearless. <laughs> Maybe I was crazy, but I was fearless. I had, uh, they used to say you had balls or cannonballs, Mark. What's, what's, what's with you? <laughs> bottom line is, uh, bottom line, is, you can cut that out of the table. <laughs> uh, the bottom line is, I go to push and I said, Mr. Levy, Tell me a time. I'm coming to see you. He said, Bob, come now. Come on. You know, so we get together. I go up. He's got like these mobster types in the elevator, running the elevators even to take you up to the top floor. <laughs> His office is that, right? You know, hey, how you doing? I don't give a crap. What are you going to do? You're going to kill me? Okay. Guess what? I'm packing two uh, pistols myself. Anyway, bottom line is... <laughs> Uh, uh, and Tommy knew that because one time we went back after an engagement uh, uh, to my place to drop some record, my records and stuff. I'll go for, and uh, then my door was ajar when we got out of the elevator. He said, Bob, that door's, you know, I said, Tommy, okay, the whole settlement. So I took one out of my shoulder holster and another guy, I went in like Tom, Tom Mix or something with two six, and, uh, you know, yeah. uh, and it turned out that. There was no one there and nothing was missing. But anyway, bottom line is, I don't want to lose track of the story. So I'm in New York. I go see Mushwebe. Before he can say anything, I said, Mr. Levy, Bob Mack, let me explain something to you. 
and I for him. You know, people say yes, sir, to him, and, and you know, he's he's his his associates are not only tough as they're dangerous. I said, oh, really? Okay. <laughs> so, uh, and I'm I'm not turning to boast. I'm just telling you the way the way I've always been and the way it was. So, bottom line is, I walk in the office and he says, Bob, let me. I said, no, let me tell you. You own the rights to the song. The song has has a major breakout in in our town. He said, Bob. I said, let me finish. I said, so you own the rights. If I take it, no, I, nobody else is going to take it. So Mush Levy, guess what? You got hanky panky. But Mr. Levy, guess what? I have the group. I have a record company. Boom, right by Romack in Pittsburgh. Okay. If I don't get an ironclad agreement with the right to view, audit you, you know, and all the pressing plant information and so forth, or you void and forth, it, it, with it, serious penalty, everything. I said, I want that kind of evidence, or I will take, or, or, or Tommy and I get on a plane tomorrow, we go back to Pittsburgh, I do the follow-up album, you can take it, I'll pay me or not, I'll do the follow-up album, and the follow-up single, and I'll come back to New York, and I'll give it to the highest bidder. Okay, trust me. Whoa! And then, and it was just silence for me. He stood up, and I stood up, and I put my hand <laughs> inside my jacket. <laughs> oh my gosh! Was, you know? And he said, "Bob, please listen to me." Bob, listen to me. I need you. I need this record. I've got a major publisher. My record company hasn't had a hit in years. This is going to be. You're my savior. You're going to you, this. This group. This deal is going to be what turns my record company. You know, no more party doll, Buddy Knox and Frankie Lyman and the teenagers and all that. You know, he was dead in the water. He said, "I need you." Whatever is a fair deal for you, you can have your own guy look over. And I actually have another New York attorney named Levy, <laughs> and David Levy. And so uh, he said, "Bob, listen, I'll give you whatever you want. I will, I, I will go balls out to make this a big deal. And whatever is needed, you got it. You know, well, obviously." He, the, the mob he was connected with probably had billions. So anyway, bottom line is, they put the deal together. I had my guy come and look at it. He said, "Yeah, you got some pretty good protection. I mean, as much as you can have in the record business." But there was things about if he would use a different pressing company that wasn't, you know, uh, acknowledged. Only anyway, bottom line is. I got as good a deal as you could get with Morris Levy. Let's put it that way. Okay. But I had businesses to run back in Pittsburgh, and I knew I could not stay with Tommy and be a manager, road manager, guiding every minute of his career. But I made, and Tommy believed that, you know, Mush Levy had uh, Rich Horse, the promotion man, or somebody with every artist he ever had, especially with uh, Frankie Lyman. They got him on drugs, and he needed them for his drugs, so he wouldn't leave them. And he only paid him enough to survive. 
okay that's how he handled uh his artists with uh he had one guy said what there was a buddy not buddy not. one of his artists he had uh, uh that walked on he had his leg uh car pulled over guys got out pulled him out of the car broke his legs you know that's the way mush dealt but uh, what was he going to do you know uh, so anyway bottom line is uh we got the deal together but i made the deal tommy doesn't even know this he thinks that i was ripping him off so uh, let me tell you this i'll tell you the story you can use what you want but bottom line is <clears throat> i got uh sal safian with associated booking the top agent with the top company okay uh for that's who i wanted for i booked that so I, you know for my clubs I, I knew who the good guys were and he was a top gun so i went over to them and they were getting they were paying all the agents all the acts that they represented and associated paid 15 percent. and they said i said well uh, uh i'm here to see saul i said well uh bob saul has you know some major acts that he handles in a pool school but we, all our people are capable of, i said sir listen read my lips i want saul Sathian to be the agent that handles my act or I'm out the door right now. So you figure out real quick what you want to do. Sol Sapien was our agent, their top agent at the top booking company. Okay. Everybody, everybody, young rascal, uh, uh, whoever, they paid 15%. I said, I want a 10% deal. He said, Bob, we can't do that. If, if anybody found out, I said, nobody finds anything out. I want a 10% deal. It's, it's, it's simple, sir. It's yes or no. They agreed to 10%. He paid less commission to their booking than any act in the world, okay? Uh, so nobody ever talks about the things I did for him, but, you know, he seems, you know, he he was with Rich Horse, their promotion man, who said, oh, Bob doesn't know this business, you need us to, you know, uh, try to do everything to get in with him and get his ear. And I couldn't be there full time. How was it that the roulette record says Bob Mack presents and doesn't say okay. I am also say that? Okay, yeah, uh, yeah, and thank you for reminding me. Uh, okay, so bottom line is then I got the top booking agency, Connie Donava, same story. She's loaded up the top agents, but she'll get, no, I want Connie. We are Connie Donava. I, I said, let me meet with you for 30 minutes. When I was done, she took the act, okay? So I had the top agency, the top publicity agent, uh, promoter uh, in Connie. Uh, I knew I couldn't be there forever because I couldn't stay in New York. I had a businesses to run back in Pittsburgh that were, it required a team of people and i tried to do it myself so bottom line is i i set him up tentatively with a management company but i insisted to myself and they were glad that i did uh, i went back and forth i must have spent enough to buy a house on plane trips back and forth so i could be there to do everything necessary and what necessary that is they had they needed a follow-up record like now today and they needed an album now well guess what i produced uh i they didn't have a record for him the group didn't have another record all the records on the album were records that were the rack on tours the group i got to back them up that was their set list that's their clubs the only record that, oh. that, uh, tommy knew was was hanky panky so bottom line is 
So I had one that was one of my monsters nobody knew called Say I Am. Right. And it was a, a great funk, a dance record. And so I said, you know, they were pulling out some old rope, rule stuff. I said, no, 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 no. Uh, for the follow-ups, I said, here, I'll get you one. So I gave them that. I gave them Say I Am. And... Uh, and uh, they were happy with it. Did it? It was probably as good or maybe better than the original record, actually. Mm -hmm. And so they learned it, and and that was their follow up. Uh, they, you know, without me, they didn't have that. So <clears throat> I produced that, and my name is on Say I Am. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, oh, also Morris Levy, Tommy, in his book said that Bob Mack had the balls to put his name on Hanky Panky. He had nothing to do with that except you know, you made made it Morris Levy, I didn't know that even happened. Morris Levy one time said, Bob, I want to show you something. I said, in appreciation for all you've done for me and to make, you know, to make this act happen, uh, he showed me a copy of Hanky Panky and he said, uh, you didn't produce this record, but without you, it never would have happened. So he put, he couldn't put up Bob Mack, he put Bob Mack Presents on mm -hmm. Hanky Panky. Yeah. Okay. When Tommy sees that, he says, oh, Bob Mack, he, he, he put his own name on there. Morris did that without me even knowing. See, that's that's the kind of crap I got back from him. But anyway, that's another story. Uh, you know, we should probably wrap up for tonight. Uh, I think this is going to definitely go into another show. <laughs> <laughs> I think we got to have a part two, Bob Mac part two. Uh, but let me finish the one thing. You just asked me something about uh, the say I am. Or, uh, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, you asked me something, and I and I didn't want to skip over it. I produced the first album. My name's on that. I produced their first single, Say I Am. My name's on, and he even put my name as a presenter, now producer, on on the Hanky Panky. So right. He he was he did express his gratitude, and that was that was kind of appreciated, but didn't make me any money. But uh, well, it wouldn't have been of the record that it it became without you. That's that's absolutely for sure. Tell me one thing: is uh, there's so many different pressings of the Snap 45 that were uh, Red Fox is named on a lot of them. And I've got the original. I've got like eight different versions of it, eight different pressings with slight label uh, information variations on it. But uh, compared to the uh, version that came out on Roulette, was it the was it the sped up version that that you had sped up from the original? Yes, yes. fortunately, everybody uh, they knew enough either from my DJs or me or however they find out, but uh, they knew enough that that uh, should be sped up. So uh, the uh, to make it danceable, and you know what? I'll be honest with you. If I hadn't taken a second listen on the variable speed turntable and sped that up, mm -hmm. it would. Be, it wouldn't have been playable to dances. It may not have ever broken out in Pittsburgh. And Tommy James may have never been known.
There you go, our conversation with the legendary Bob Mack, the Records and Romance Man. That's right. We're going to go to Mark to list the very first set of the show. We'll be listing all the tunes that were played during this program. And here we go. We started the show with Leroy Fully Love. Yes, the one and only Leroy Fully Love and the Buffs. And I want to know, on the Elko label from 1955, they were out of Arizona. Then we heard the four Bel Airs and Where Are You on Extra from 1958. And then the Enchantments did Lonely Heart on Romac. Romac being Bob's own label. The Quills, a.k.a. the Incinerators, <laughs> a name that I may have preferred. Whose Love But Yours, 1959 on Casino. Followed that up with the Montclairs, All I Want Is You. Wow, 1956 Sonic, super fave right now. Yeah, and the Monterey's, Darling, I Love You So, 1962 on Transamerican. The next set began with the Supremes, not those Supremes, tribute to... Rice Krispies with Snap, Crackle, and Pop on the Mark label from 1958. Billy Fortune and the Squires, Listen to Your Heart on Dice. And Jules Savoy did Tutti Fruity Man on the real label from 1956. Ooh, yeah, that's incredible. Hey, we wrapped the whole thing up with the stuff that really got Bob Mack on the map all over the world, and that was the discovery of Tommy James, a.k.a. Tommy Jackson. We played the Shondells original version, Hanky Panky, 1964 on Snap, which was made so famous in Pittsburgh and ended up creating a career for Tommy James. And the follow-up to Hanky Panky for the Shondells is Tommy James and the Shondells was Say I Am 1966 on Roulette. We have the lead-in on that from the original version by the Fireballs doing Say I Am. And that wraps up this episode of a conversation with Bob Mack of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We will be continuing this conversation possibly at Kicksville instead of here at Crashing the Party as we go into the garage music that was popularized in Pittsburgh by Bob Mack and others. Stay tuned with us, won't you? You're listening to Crashing the Party. Crashing the Party. 